I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast Extra Credit. This is a special episode of the Magnificast where we dig in a little more to a special topic. You might be wondering, hey, where's that other guy that's on this podcast? Well, this episode's just me, so if you're only here for that good exclusive Dean content, maybe just skip on ahead. But otherwise, uh, stay tuned for a special interview. You might remember that in episode 76, we did an interview with Jared Ware about his involvement with the 2018 national prison strike. Toward the end of that episode, we asked him if he had any insight to what Christians that work in prisons, like prison chaplains, for example, uh, thought about the strike. He said that he didn't, but he should find out. It seemed like a good question and something that I want to know a little bit more about. And I just so happened to have a friend who actually is a prison chaplain. So I thought that I would send her a message and schedule an interview and we could find out kind of what the prison chaplain take is on the strike. After all, it seems kind of like an interesting and important question. Do Christians who are prison chaplains side with the strikers? Do they side with the institution? How does that all play out? So stay tuned for this interview and we'll figure it all out together. So in this interview, I talked with my friends from undergrad. Her name's Erica Spring. We uh, went to Greenlee University together. After that, she went on to Princeton Theological Seminary. She got a cool master's degree doing theology. She got ordained, and now she works as a prison chaplain. So before we really get into the interview, she did need to make this clarification. My name's Erica Spring, and I work at Vandalia Correctional Center, but I should say that um, at the very beginning, I don't represent them. I don't represent Vandalia Correctional Center or Illinois Department of Corrections. So anything I say here and henceforward is only my personal opinion, not anything that can be used um, to represent the state or the facility. As I started talking with Erica, it seemed pretty clear to me that I had no idea what it actually meant to be a prison chaplain, like not even a little bit. Erica is definitely an ordained pastor. She has the credentials to prove it. Uh, but when you hear her talk about it, it seems like it's a pretty far thing from the pastor or priest of your local church. So instead of church bells, sermonizing, and potlucks, Erica's work mostly comes in the form of paperwork. So much of my job is paperwork. Um, the facility has paperwork because um, we are a minimum security facility, but every facility runs their movement differently. So movement being how do inmates get from one building to another or one activity to another. And so there's paperwork for all of that because no inmate's allowed to go anywhere if they're not on a list. And so I spend so much of my time putting inmates on lists for religious services or um, answering inmate requests because they will write you and you have to write back. So a lot of my day is on the computer and writing hand mail to inmates. So it's a lot of 
facilitating other people's religious practice, not so much what you'd imagine if a normal pastor is sitting here saying, oh, I preach and I teach classes and stuff like that. So a lot of the stuff I've talked to inmates about has been anxieties around their release date. Um, You know, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? How do I manage relationships when I get out there? Because so many of them are going back to relationships they don't really want to continue. Um, How do I stay clean? How do I stay strong in my faith, as they will, as they say? So a lot of it is around anxieties about leaving because so many of them are so close. A lot of people I interact with are within six months or less. Um, and we have a, I had a couple conversations recently with inmates who were also just concerned about doubting. There's a lot of concern about if you doubt or if you question or if you struggle, what that means for your faith. So... We have lots of good conversations about that because I don't think the same thing. I don't think that means anything negative about faith at all. In fact, I think it's pretty integral to faith. So I try to sort of insert that without telling them what to do. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully this doesn't come off as a reactionary take. This podcast, that is, you know, Dean and I both, are committed to the abolition of prison. I think that's something that's pretty clear from the like three episodes we've done so far. Though, from Erica's quick description, it does seem like prison chaplains are a positive force in carceral systems. We've cast a lot of aspersions in this uh, podcast on prison guards and also police in the past, but I think there's a qualitative difference between working as a prison chaplain and, say, working as a prison guard. I can't speak for all chaplains. Some of them are probably bad. (laughs) But facilitating religious worship is something small that makes an unlivable situation Uh, just a bit more amenable to prisoners. All that being said, before we move on, Erica did want to relate a little bit of the story about some of those chaplains who are less than good. I will say that a lot of chaplains that I know are Christian, so it's not required that you are to be a prison chaplain. It's required that you are some sort of licensed or ordained leader of a faith. But most chaplains I know are Christian in their affiliation, and most chaplains I know, not just from Illinois, are um, Christian and facilitate Christian practice of religion very easily and sort of make it difficult for other religions to practice in the prison. Mm. So there are a lot of laws that govern practice of religion in prison, a lot of First Amendment laws, a lot of cases that have been brought, inmates trying to fight to protect their First Amendment. So there's Most of what I do is not my own decision. Most of what I do is, well, the state law of Illinois says, or well, this administrative directive says. And it says in there that we are required to facilitate the practice of of any religion that an inmate is when they request services. If they don't request anything, it doesn't matter if I have 12 Hindus, then I don't have to provide it if they don't ask. Um, But, for example, we have a library a religious library that I'm in charge of facilitating, and it was all Christian books. We give out Bibles to anyone who requests them, but when any Muslims ask for Qurans, we just don't have any. Now, it's not required that I give out anything, because these are all donations, but a lot of chaplains I know will do things like that, go out of their way to get Christian materials, and not go out of their way to get any materials for other religions. So um, we're supposed to be interfaith chaplains, and on paper, we are. And by law, 
we are because a lot of that stuff is just extra stuff we're doing, not anything we're required to do. But we tend to go the extra mile for whatever faith we are. Mm. And so um, I've been trying really hard. I've only been there a couple of months, but to sort of counter counter that. Yeah. Um, we just got a box of like 300 Qurans. So I'm just like handing them out to Muslims as well. It's important, I think, for chaplains to view their role as chaplains to the inmates and those who work there because we're a chaplain to the facility, which is very hard because security and offenders always view themselves as at odds and to be pastor to both when there's a conflict between them is incredibly difficult. But it's really important, I think, to try to bridge that gap between them and be able to pastor both. And I don't really exactly know how to do that yet. I just know it's really important. In my mind, I know whom and with what I, I think is important or right. But I have to be careful not to isolate or alienate either, either people. Yeah. Yeah. So you, that's difficult, especially when um, I have the strength of belief in the Gallup Finder assessment. And so holding my own beliefs inside and not projecting or commanding is difficult. (laughs) If you've ever listened to the Magnificast before, you know that Dean and I are not great theologians. We get politics, we get philosophy, we get media, but theology is something that's just a little bit over our heads. Instead of making any theological assumptions about incarceration and just goofing up in general, I thought that it would be best just to ask Erica if theology was something that actually made a difference in her daily practice or if it was something that was, you know, too abstract. Basically, I wanted to know if Christian ideas about punishment and retribution versus salvation and healing actually made a difference in her life. And the first month... I was working there. I was exhausted after work, not just because the job was hard and new, but because every situation I encountered threw me into like this existential and theological crisis in my head. (laughs) And so everything I encountered was just like, but it means 16 times what it looks like it means. There's a book written by a guy whose last name is Logan, I believe, and it's called Good Punishment with a question mark at the end. And he talks about different theories and ideas of punishments. and as it relates to incarceration, right? So most people I know, including those who work at Department of Corrections, not just in Illinois, um, are in agreement that our prison system is punitive. That's not really debated even from my coworkers. (laughs) Um, There are people who work at DOC who really want rehabilitation and are trying very hard to make that the predominant foundation. But I don't think anyone's in disagreement that currently it's more punitive. And that's absolutely a problem for me. Um, Theologically, I can't find anywhere in the scripture that Jesus sort of behaves like that or commands us to treat each other punitively. You know, I, I find grace and forgiveness and love sort of at the base of all Christian thought and 
it's absolutely not something that the prison system is founded upon or incorporates at regularity. There's a lot of dehumanization that goes into the roles that people in facilities play. And and I don't mean to equate the two because inmates and security and administration, they're all very different, but they all suffer a certain kind of dehumanization just from working within a punitive system. There's no real resolution for me in that, except that I recognize I work within one, that it's not rehabilitative at the moment, and that I'm trying my best to sort of counter that as much as I can with the, the with what I believe to be more humanizing and loving and gracious without thinking that my individual efforts are going to completely change the entire Department of Corrections nationwide. It seems like my questions were answered. Theology does matter. Erica's particular theological position creates a lot of tension for her, but it also opens up her imagination for what could be possible. With these big theological ideas on the table, I asked Erica what's next. If incarceration isn't great, then what does she, a person of faith and someone with the inside knowledge of working within a prison, think would help or like just would be better? Without much prompting, she jumped right into a structural social analysis about prison abolition, and it was a pretty interesting take. So this is, again, more tension that I try to live in. If I was just asked whether I favored reform of prisons or um, more abolition of prisons, I would lean towards abolition. So it's a weird question for me to answer, like what would make it more rehabilitative when I also sort of want to say, well, incarcerating less people <laughs> and almost getting rid of our prisons, you know, because um, answering your question sort of makes me say, well, if a prison system still existed, what could we change on the inside of it to make it more humane? Um, so I'll try to answer that. But also, I guess I want to make it known that, like, I'm not sure that's the answer either. Every facility is run differently. There are obviously laws that govern how, but like things like um, can you talk and where can you talk and what kind of movement from one building to another and how many programs can you be involved in? That's all set at each individual facility. So people's experiences at various facilities can range from, well, this one was really dehumanizing, but this one I felt like it was fine. So something more standard <laughs> would probably be helpful. Um, something that um, and I don't think programming is the answer in and of itself because a lot of rehabilitation focuses on programming. We'll have an AA class or a um, a dialectical behavioral therapy class, and those are really useful. I just don't think that's completely everything. So I think a lot of it has to do with, honestly, training workers. I think every every correctional employee needs to be trauma trained. I think every correctional employee needs to be addictions trained. Um, I think it has to do with de-escalation training. And I just finished training last week and they did train on de-escalation. Um, but I think all of those things, I think a lot of the dehumanization doesn't come so much from policies or programs, but more from interactions between people, um, which I think can, if people are more aware of why people act the way they do, like trauma or addiction or whatever, then um, I hope that that basis could like lead to them treating each other differently. Because a lot of people that I've spoken to are just not aware of how trauma changes the brain and how trauma affects behavior. They think that some of these inmates are acting out just because they want to be difficult. And that tr leads them to treat them worse than they may otherwise do. I think that there are, and maybe these don't exist currently within America, but that there are in the realm of possibility ways to address societal problems that are not locking people up in cells. 
Um, a lot of people become incarcerated because of some society societal issues that they've experienced, like when they were younger. So certain things that don't seem like they're related to incarceration are like helping like people get adequate medical care, um, helping people get adequate food, um, fair labor wages, um, making daycare for single parents cheaper. Like a lot of these things don't have anything to do directly with incarceration, but they have everything to do with how these children are raised and how families develop, which will lead to certain behaviors later. So I think I'm in favor of abolition because all of those things are more sustainable. They address the problem at a collective level, not an individual level. And a lot of our current prison system addresses it as if it's an individualistic problem. So I was raised not at all to believe in biblical like literacy or inerrancy, but I was raised with a stronger emphasis on um, a more more literal, not completely literal, but a more literal reading of the Bible than I currently possess. Somewhere along my journey, I have transitioned into sort of maybe believing in like this overarching narrative of scripture rather than like specific one-liner verses that you can pull out of scripture. So the overarching narrative that I see when I read the Bible or when I talk about Jesus is that Jesus's death on the cross, a lot of American Christianity focuses on that as being very individualistic also. It forgives your sins. You, Matt Bernico, are suddenly sinless because Jesus died on the cross for you. I don't mean to say that that's not true, but I do mean to say it's not complete. And a lot of my beliefs about sort of the collective and systemic necessities come from a belief that when Jesus died on the cross, it was a systemic upheaval also. It was not just about him dying for me, but it was upending the power of Rome at the time, upending injustice, sort of submitting himself to an unjust system, everyone and exposing it for what it is, and then conquering that system and the powers of this world by being God's son and raising from the dead. So there's a broader perspective of Jesus's life and death on the cross that can be taken than what a lot of American Christianity makes it out to be. And when I started to realize that, that it wasn't just about my sins, I started to view the importance of systems and alternative Christian systems sort of than that of the world. So when the Bible talks about, you know, we are should, should be in the world, but not of it. I don't think that means we should be living in the world, but not swearing or drinking. I think it means we should be in the world and not abiding by its rules or systems because we, that's not our governance. Erica lays out a view of Jesus that seems pretty in line with the way we talk about it on this podcast, but it is at odds with a lot of U.S. Christianity. Being a Christian doesn't mean just falling in line with empire, but doing things the way Jesus might have done, which, you know, means flipping over tables and giving people fish. <laughs> if it is the case that Jesus requires us to do some things and think about the world in a pretty drastically different way, then I wondered what Erica might think about the 2018 national prison strike. I started off asking whether or not it was a concern for her institution that, you know, maybe the prison strike would spread there. And I got a pretty surprising answer. The ways that I know about the prison strike have nothing to do with my work, nothing to do with my coworkers, nothing to do with inmates. They all have to do with 
Twitter and the news. Um, in general, there exists a fear of those things and corrections anyway. Not um, about this particular thing, but in general, corrections is always sort of on the lookout for abnormal inmate activity. So there's a low-level concern for that just period from being in that environment. But nothing I've heard specific to this other than, again, like national news and people just being aware of it because it's a thing that's happening. So this is where my personal beliefs definitely do not go in sync at all with where I work. So I want to reiterate everything I'm about to say has nothing to do with corrections in any state (laughs) or my facility at all. Um, And honestly, it's weird for me uh, to have the beliefs that I do and to work in the place that I do. So my personal beliefs about the prison strike are, I think it's awesome. Like, I think it is important for inmates to make their voices heard because A, it's pretty impossible to do that. B, if they are heard, they're very rarely heard outside of the walls of the prison itself. And I'm a big believer in activism of any kind anyway, not just prison activism, um, but any kind of protest or organized nonviolent action. I'm I'm a big fan and participant of those things on my personal time. Um, the question of efficacy is always a hard one, but also one that I don't know is ultimately the most important thing. Um, it is important. Obviously, we want change and inmates want change. They're not doing this just for fun. They want practical, real change to come out of this. Um, but also, it is important to just have society to realize what's going on. You know, I'm so deep in the prison world that I forget that most of society does not know half of the problems that even exist with prisons or even realize that they might live two miles from one. So I'm, I'm a real big fan of people and especially incarcerated people making their voices heard. Um, it concerns me because our system is pretty punitive and not just from this, this, um, this particular strike, but strikes in general have not ended favorably for a lot of inmates in the past. Um, There has been policy change for sure, but we are also still struggling with a lot of the same things we were struggling with then. You know, um, I mentioned to you earlier that the current prison strike has 10 demands. Attica's prison strike and rebellion had 27. And there are five or six of the current prison strike demands that were in Attica's also. And so you could look at that and be like, that's really disheartening. Attica was in, what, 1979, I think. So it's been years and we're still asking for the same things. Or you, could, But there also has been some change in those things. They're just still bad. So it's not as if none of the things since Attica have changed. It's just that they're still not humanizing, you know? So we're still asking for better conditions. Um, so I think it's important. But if you read about Attica and its aftermath, a lot of the inmates who participated in it were punished. A lot of the inmates who were harmed physically in any way, even just as bystanders, weren't given good medical care. You know, so as a chaplain, as a carer of those incarcerated, I want their voices to be heard. And I'm also I'm also concerned about what may happen to them as a result.
I had a friend who was not unsympathetic, but was not moved by my passion for incarcerated peoples until her father got incarcerated. And now she cares a lot. And now she vents to me about the things that I previously have called out as unfair. <laughs> you know, I spent years being like, this is unethical and unfair. And then as soon as her father was incarcerated, she was like, can you believe that they do this? Yes, I can. In fact, I thought I tried to tell you that, you know. Um, so no one thinks that's going to happen to them. No one or anyone they know. Um, but statistics show that at least in terms of who we know, yeah, it will. It will happen to someone that you know. Um, maybe not as a close associate, but it will happen to someone that you know. So part of, I think, caring is caring just about that, about people in your circle who are at risk for that also. Also, I think part of the way that I would talk to other Christians about this is the idea of salvation. And I probably would focus on that more so than the idea of incarcerated people, period. So if I want them to care about that, then I might, I would probably start talking to them about the idea of individual versus collective salvation. And again, with a lot of the American church focusing on, well, I'm saved, I prayed this prayer, I I try to be a good person, great. But the idea being that like our salvation as as like people is bound up together and your salvation matters because it's also mine. And that is a radical difference from the way a lot of American Christians think about salvation. But I think once you start to view it that way, it's very, very hard to not care about a lot of injustices done to humans. And so because that's a basis for me, sort of the idea of collective salvation and collective humanity, I would probably try to start <laughs> pitching that to other Christians from that perspective and seeing if I can branch out from there. Because mm. <laughs> you're right, a lot of Christians aren't compassionate. If I just walk around saying, hey, you should be more loving, it's never going to work. <laughs> Even yeah. though it should work. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that is a pretty common thread that I hear from inmates in general is, can you imagine being known only by the worst thing you ever did? Um, which is like just like heartbreaking. Like, because, so I guess one of the other things I would say to people who don't care about inmates for some of those reasons, right? That's not an uncommon reason. Well, they've done something bad. Of course they should be punished. Okay, but really, haven't you? Like maybe not to the same extent, or maybe you have. So for example, in New Jersey, I worked with a woman who had gotten drunk, drove, and killed someone. So she's incarcerated for six years. Um, and I have friends who have also drove drunk. Did they make different decisions? Absolutely not. But the consequences were different. And so really, and especially in situations like that, there's absolutely no difference between my friend and that incarcerated woman. There's not. There's no difference in character. There's no difference in desire. There's no difference in morals. There's literally just a difference in, like, who was driving on the road that night. So some, I think starting there, rather than with the really extremes, well, this person killed six people, <laughs> is a little helpful to get people to start caring. The situation that incarcerated people find themselves in is hard. Not only are the conditions themselves bad, hazardous to their life, and just plain unjust, but everyone else on the outside of that enclosed space has already passed judgment on their life and their moral worth. Theology, reform, abolition are all just nice and big ideas. But what can people actually do? Is there any contributions that Christians can specifically make to the abolition and liberty of the incarcerated? Or is it kind of hopeless? I don't know that my answer to what can Christians do is inherently different than what can just people do. 
Um, obviously, Christians may be doing it from a different standpoint, different reason, but I think it's really important in things like this to partner with people who don't believe like you also. So there are plenty of campaigns out there. So Ban the Box campaign, um, I'll explain it for anyone who doesn't know, is like when you're released from incarceration, on, on job applications, there's a, a box that says, have you ever been previously convicted of a felony? And you, you know, it, it's a big deal not getting jobs. So there's a campaign out there to ban the box. There's a campaign out there to um, get inmates the right to vote. Because once you are convicted of a felony in certain states, most states, just not all of them, you can't vote, um, you are no longer eligible for government-assisted housing, which is what most of them need because a lot of them are poor. Um, bail is ridiculously expensive. So like all of these things are campaigns that already exist sort of in the realm of incarcerated activism. And I would just say, like, jump in. Like, first off, for Christians, don't re don't start something on your own. There's already these things that exist. There's already really dedicated people doing this work. If you're interested in doing the work, find the people who are already doing it and who already know a lot and join in what they're doing. Um, secondly, I mean, look up where a close a prison is to you. You probably live closer to one than you think you do, federal or state or county jail. You you definitely live closer to one than you think you do. Also, ICE facilities are another one you can look up. And see if there are programs there. You know, like, see if there's a group that goes in to teach, see if there's a group that goes in to visit. If that's, like, not your thing, cool. Like, you don't have to, I don't think there's one way you have to do it. Um, I don't think you have to go visit inmates or you have to go protest in the street. I think you need to find what ways you can do and just do something. Um, also, it's really important, I think, for Christians to evaluate where they're spending their money and not just spending their money, but where they are investing and buying things because a lot of prison, a lot of companies benefit from prison labor and are making a ton of money off of inmates. Um, and so Christians de-investing in some of those companies, um, until they pay fair wages or until they, you know, would be also really useful. Um, but that all those things require work and time and effort, which is the barrier to people doing it. You know, some people might not be against changing how they spend their money, but they're against doing the two hours of research it would take to find out what companies to stop buying from. There are a number of ways to struggle against the society of incarceration that we ourselves have built. I think that it's imperative that Christians take up this struggle. As we often recognize in this podcast, too much of Christianity has been complicit in the construction of an unjust society. It is a moral failure for Christians not to work to thwart incarceration and the linked societal maladies that lay at the root of incarceration. Hopefully, Erica's words on her experience as a prison chaplain and her thoughts on reform and abolition might strengthen that abolitionist impulse that is already present within Christianity. I think it's like Vincent Lloyd and Josh Dubler say, just as America has a prison culture, America also has an abolition culture. Just as American prison culture is religious, American abolition culture is also religious. In an expansive, critical, and practical sense, religion must be woven into the growing prison abolition movement. In righteous struggle as spiritual revival, let us conjure together the spirit of abolitionism and let us tumble the prison walls down. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord.